0: This is a Foobar Radio podcast. Go to fubarradio.com for more details.
1: Foobar Radio Preserve. Politics on Foobar.
2: You're listening to Politics on Foobar Radio. I'm John Ellidge. I'll be with you for the next hour to discuss some of the big issues in the news this week, chat about some of the bigger problems facing Britain today, and, you know, generally talk nonsense. We, we talk a lot in politics about, about divides. We talk about the divide between different parties, obviously. There's the the increasingly acrimonious division between those who want to leave the European Union and those who want to remain inside. Plus, I suspect, a, a much larger group who just like the whole issue to go away. This week, it also turns out there's a divide between the people who think we should oppose Nazis and people who think they're just fine, which is, you know, that's not something I, I saw coming, to be honest, but... But there's another divide, there's one that's been around a lot longer than you or I, one that goes back decades, and that's the North-South divide. Once upon a time, the North of England was was at the heart of the British economy. You know, the region is, is rich in natural resources like coal, the hilly landscape made it a great place to put water mills, and the damp climate made it a good place to, to spin cotton, so the Industrial Revolution... Something which made Britain into a world power and which totally changed the way humanity lives on this planet, that was basically invented in the north of England. In the early 19th century, cities like Manchester, Sheffield and Bradford boomed off the back of these industries, and a million people moved to Liverpool just to work on the docks through which goods passed into and out of the north. Political power always stayed in the south, but economic power in the 19th century was largely in the north of England. But then, about 100 years ago or so, that that started to change. By by that time, other countries had their own industrial revolutions, and and they could produce the same goods for less money than we could in Britain, because wages here were higher. The First World War and then the Great Depression wiped out huge swathes of industry. So as early as the 1930s, the North was already starting to fall a long way behind the South. As a, a pretty shocking statistic I came across the other day. In the North East, in the Newcastle and so on, in 1913, the unemployment rate was just 2%. 20 years later, it was over 30%. That is an enormous share of the population out of work, and that's a complete change in the space for generation. And part of that was the Great Depression, but some of it wasn't. I I, I realise this is quite a lengthy detour into, into history, but the reason I thought it was important is because we often talk as if industrial decline is a recent phenomenon, you know, particularly something that was brought about by, by the Thatcher government in the 1980s. And and it's true, that government did do a lot to exacerbate the problems. But, by keeping the pound strong, it made British exports less competitive. Its anti-union policies crushed industries like mining. And, and, it, and it basically created the modern financial services industry, which sent London's economy into the stratosphere and, and exacerbated that division. But Margaret Thatcher did not create the North-South divide. She just exacerbated a trend that was already there. At any rate, today, Britain is one of the most economically divided countries in the developed world. London is, is one of the richest cities on the planet. But outside the southeast of England, you will find nine of the 10 poorest regions in northern Europe. Wages in places like Reading or Crawley are nearly 50% higher than those in places like Wigan and Huddersfield. And in, in, in terms of its economy, Britain is basically Portugal with, with Singapore in one corner. The result of all this has been a sort of internal brain drain. You get clever kids who grow up in the North, or, or people who graduate from the North's many great universities, they end up moving to London. Why? Because because there are better jobs here. Because they can make more money here. Because the government is here. If you want to make it big in this country, it is much easier to do it in London than anywhere else. Um, I don't think this is really going very well for anyone. It's not good for the North, obviously, because it doesn't have enough jobs or high enough wages. But it's also not good for the South, because the population rise down there has sent house prices soaring. To put it bluntly, in one half of the country, there aren't enough houses. And in the other half, there aren't enough jobs. No wonder everyone's so angry all the time. Anyway, as I said at the start of this ramble through economic history, this this has been going on for a long time. And if we knew how to stop it, we'd probably have done it already. But that, that has not stopped people trying. The last Labour government invested a lot in regenerating the centres of those big industrial cities. Um, And the last Tory Chancellor, George Osborne, when not cutting council budgets for austerity, would talk a lot about the northern powerhouse, which basically just meant boosting the northern economy through things like improving links to to its biggest city, Manchester. The result of those policies is the the new metro mayors, the sort of regional equivalents of of London's Sadiq Khan. And that, that means that for the first time in decades, there are decisions about the north actually being taken in the north. Whether, whether it will work remains to be seen. But that's, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to talk about the unequal distribution of jobs and wealth and housing in this country. We're going to talk about why everyone hates London, which, you know, let's be honest. I'm going to be talking to Lloyd, Lloyd Russell Moyle, sorry, the newly elected MP for Brighton Kemptown and a former Bradford resident. We've got a great panel to discuss economic division in Britain and what we can do to fix it. And at the end of the show, I'm going to be chatting to Jem Williams, the political editor of the Manchester Evening News, about how the world looks from the north today. You know, people have been trying to fix North-South divide for, for 80 years, but we've got an hour and we've got some fantastic guests, so I'm pretty sure we can have all this sorted out by 2 o'clock. As ever, if you'd like to comment on anything in the show, please do get in touch. You can tweet us at food bar Radio or you can email politics at FooBarRadio.com. And if you're listening to the show on iTunes, we would love it if you could leave us a nice review. It really helps people to discover the show, which is obviously something we'd, we'd quite like to do. In, in a moment, I'm going to be reviewing the week's news with author and journalist Dr. Joanna Williams. We will be straight back after this trailer.
1: Voo Radio presents... Payne and Sylvester
2: Incorporated
1: with Michael Payne and Harley Sylvester from Rizzle Kicks.
3: Paddy Power once did Who Would Win? A Trillion Lions, or oh, The Sun, and they had a better... Ba- <laughs> <laughs> trillion
0: lions at so the, the sun. sun? Yeah, and people saying
3: it depends. If you had each lion come in as the last one died, they could probably outlast in the sun. Yeah. Or if a trillion lions pissed all at the same time, they could probably put out the sun. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I'm pretty
5: sure
1: this,
3: oh, it would evaporate weird, before <laughs> I got anywhere near the sun.
1: Every Wednesday. Oh, Payne and Sylvester Incorporated with Michael Payne and Harley Sylvester from Rizzle Kicks From 4pm. Fubar Radio.
2: You're listening to Politics and Food Bar with me, John Ellidge. Uh, I'm joined now by Joanna Williams, the education editor of Spiked and the author of books including Women vs. Feminism, where we all need liberating from the gender wars, which isn't. That's quite the title. It's it's Thursday lunchtime it's, as we're re- recording this, so... How are you feeling about your A-level results today?
6: <laughs> well, I've got to declare a personal interest in this as my 18-year-old has received his A-level results today and it's quite stressful oh, waiting God, for yeah! your own child's results at the same time as it being the leading news story yeah. as well.
2: I hesitate to ask, but uh, is, it all, is everyone happy?
6: Uh, As happy as can be expected under the circumstances I think is probably the best way of putting it. Uh, But I think it's kind of become a very interesting news story because it's obviously the first year of the new tougher A-levels where students haven't been able to take a a modularised approach or um, rely on results that they got at the end of one year AS level. So it's been tougher and harder for them. But what's really interesting, I think, is how the head of Ofqual has uh, come out and said that the grade boundary should be lowered so that all our brilliant children can get the recognition for being as fantastic as they really are. I kind of think it's a little bit patronising to 18-year-olds who did work really hard.
2: So, so are you in favour of the, the reforms then?
6: Definitely. I think it's good. I think most 18-year-olds are quite capable as young adults of coping with an intellectual challenge and I think um, this this idea of having something a tough hurdle before you go to university and I think they most of them rose to the challenge and actually enjoyed being able to test themselves out intellectually in that way and then to turn around and say well they're all brilliant that so we need to lower the boundaries is really insulting to them to their teachers to the efforts that they've all put in
2: I have to say I'm, I'm old enough not to have done AS levels it was just a levels when I did it which was which actually was kind of great because it meant that in lower six you didn't really have that much to worry about and you could just really spend the year finding out which pubs would serve you when you're underage um, which so so you you plucked out a number of a number of other stories that you think uh, are interesting for the week one of which i believe uh, involves everyone's favorite president donald trump
6: <laughs> yeah i think he's been in the news a lot this week because of the charlottesville uh, incident mm-hmm. that took place and um, i think it's shocking that he didn't come straight out and condemn what's happened. But I think what's been really interesting to see is the fallout that's taken place um, since the announcement that he made, particularly yesterday with the statement that the two President Bushes made, which is I'm not sure if that's the correct the correct way to say the plural of President Bush, but <laughs> both President Bushes, um, and they drew upon a quote from Thomas Jefferson um, to remind people that or men are created equal. And um, that we we shouldn't be fighting a war on race but I thought what was really interesting about that statement is just how outdated it seems nowadays the idea of talking about all men uh, Mm. and the idea of of talking about people as equality it kind of slightly reminiscent of the Martin Luther King statement that we should be judging people by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin but that just seems to be incredibly controversial nowadays nowadays we always seem to be told we need to see people in terms of their race and in terms of their skin colour.
2: I think it's worth remembering that, I mean, Thomas Jefferson was not just the author of the Declaration of Independence and those very fine words. He was also a man who owned a lot of slaves. He was a very big supporter of that institution. I believe he also had, uh, actually had children with one of his slaves, which is, you know, it's, that's, that's a form of coercion, right? So it's, he, I mean, how much was he really living up to those ideals, I think is something one has to kind of ponder from a, from a modern perspective.
6: Absolutely true. And I mean, that's the key, what you've just said there. What we're doing is we're we're judging the past by the standards of the present. And unsurprisingly, we're finding that it doesn't come short, that that it, it falls short. But as a promise, as an aspiration that all people are equal, I think it's a a mighty fine aspiration that we should be trying to uphold. And I think more the problem nowadays is that instead of having the aspiration for equality between the genders, between people with different skin colour, we're being told that we have to judge people on the basis of their gender. We have to see people as gendered and racialised beings first and foremost.
2: But surely one's gender, one's race, one's sexuality, all these other things, they are part of of our identity, like I I am very aware that I have a certain set of advantages in life because just, just because I do not need to fear for my safety walking down a street in the middle of the night or something, you know, there are ways in which my life is easier than it would be if I was a woman of colour, for example. I mean, is it not right? We, we, we should take these things into account when we're discussing these issues?
6: I actually think life's a lot more complicated than that. I mean, I know plenty of white men um, who don't have that privilege and can't be said to lead lives of privilege in any way whatsoever and I think it's very simplistic to judge people by the most basic biological features and I certainly hope to surpass my biology and to be judged on the basis of what I think and what I say and what I do rather than just on the m- most basic biological features of who I am. But that, that, that bit was easy, that was given to me at birth, my gender and my race w- were assigned to me at the moment of my conception. Um, I'd like to think that what I've done with my life since that point has been partly down to my own um, agency.
2: Mm, mm. I mean, getting back to Trump, one of the things I find quite interesting is watching the fallout in the Republican Party, where there do seem to have been a lot of senior Republicans... Who are condemning it, but not quite condemning it. Like they're saying, oh, well, we, you shouldn't give comfort to Nazis, but nobody's saying our president should not be giving comfort to Nazis. It, 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 it feels like they're still sort of slightly hedging their bets, doesn't it?
6: Well, I think there has been an awful lot of criticism. I mean, look at all the uh, business people who were advising Trump who've now resigned, and Trump's thrown his toys out of his pram and said that he doesn't want business advisors as a result. So I think Trump has come in for an awful lot of criticism, but I think. You know, obviously what happened in Charlottesville was, was a complete tragedy for the woman who's died and the people who were injured, but I think we do need to keep the events in perspective a little bit, and I think the more we hype up, talk of fascism and Nazis, and, and the more I think we actually give these sad losers, horrible people whose views I would vehemently disagree with an awful lot more credit than they deserve we make them seem bigger and more powerful than they actually are and i think mm. that plays to their advantage well
2: this is the whole basis of, of any form of terrorist ideology really isn't it it's like it's not just about the actions it's about the fear they they produce in people um one of the one of the the ongoing uh, debates in in our office at the moment is whether it's okay to punch a Nazi. Uh, because there was that, that very fine video of, of uh, Richard Spencer getting punched in the face a few months ago, which I have to say, I find it very difficult to feel any sort of concern about that. I kind of think if you've advocated... If you've advocated for violence, I think it's it's legitimate that people will use violence against you to an extent. I mean, where do you stand on that one?
6: Well, I mean, first of all, I would take issue with calling um, somebody, I um, said, pathetic loser. <laughs> I mean, is the best way I can think of to describe it as a Nazi, because I actually think that really trivialises what went on in Germany during the Second World War when you're talking about the Holocaust as a state-sponsored. Rounding up of people and killing people, and we kind of bandy these words around nowadays, like fascist and Nazi, and kind of laugh about, you know, can we go and punch a Nazi or not? And actually, but, but hang on, I'm going
2: to take issue with that. Is there not a danger of collapsing more than a decade of German history into? I mean, like the Holocaust was not going on in 1933. But there were things that were not entirely unreminiscent of what we've just seen in Charlottesville going on. So is there not a sort of thin end of the wedge argument and it's kind of better to be sort of stamping on this stuff now rather than waiting for the really nasty stuff to come?
6: I just think there's a danger of relativism here, and I think that's a, a far bigger problem for me, that we completely relativise um, right-wing nut jobs. <laughs> essentially. You know, these people are horrible people who, I, like I say, would disagree with vehemently. But I think to bandy around the label Nazi, I think the problem is then when you use that kind of language, where do you then go when you do have real when you've used mm. up your words like nazi and fascist on losers where do you then go when you do have a real threat and the danger of relativism is that we use these words when they're not actually warranted
2: this this conversation has got very heavy let's talk about something lighter i believe there was a story from um, one of britain's university campuses you were keen to talk about
6: uh, yeah, so this is the, um, well, it's a very debatable whether or not this is censorship, but it's been flagged up as a, as, as a, cen- a censorship issue. This is the novel Fanny Hill, it, the oldest erotic novel in the English language, which, um Uh, a lecturer has come out and said that she won't teach anymore so now obviously there's a big debate about whether this is censorship or whether this is self-censorship or whether this is just somebody um, changing their course content because they have every right to do so I think it's a very interesting issue for for teasing out how censorship works on campus nowadays because um, on the one hand a lot of people have said oh this is because of snowflake triggered students and on the other a lot of people have said you know this is not censorship at all uh, this is just responding to student sensitivities I actually think the reality is somewhere in the middle of that you've got people preempting students' concerns and, and academics thinking that students are way more sensitive and less able to cope. The word vulnerable is used an awful lot nowadays in relation to students. You know, students 18, 19, 20 years old, I don't think they are vulnerable. And yet there's this assumption on so many university campuses that students are sensitive and vulnerable, that what happens is people then preempt things that they might find offensive and stop teaching them, remove them, on the assumption that these things might be offensive. So so academics essentially self-censor because they're assuming vulnerabilities and sensitivities in students that just might not be there. I think young people are a lot tougher than we give them credit Mm. for.
2: No, it it does feel like... um, like I I did an English literature degree and I absolutely adore restoration comedy just because it is so... It's obscene in a yeah. lot of places and that's just and and one doesn't necessarily think of the past in those terms and it's just quite funny. It, it's quite entertaining to find people laughing at dirty jokes in the in the sixteen sixties. Uh, well, Joe, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been very good to speak to you and um best of luck.
6: You're welcome. Thank you.
2: Uh, in a moment I'm going to be speaking to Lloyd Russell Moyle, the new Labour MP for Brighton Kemptown and Peacehaven, about Westminster's attitude to the rest of the country. First up though Let's hear from the Mayor of
0: Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. The truth is this, Westminster over decades has failed the north of England. It has created a very unequal country. Unequal access to truth and justice. An unfair distribution of wealth, health and life chances. Two countries. Theresa May's response has been to threaten to pull the plug on the Northern Powerhouse and Tory promises of investment here. If you do, Prime Minister, it will be as big a betrayal of the North as Margaret Thatcher's in the 1980s. Surely the right answer to Brexit is to deepen the commitment to the Northern Powerhouse, not abandon it. Try and catch a train from Lime Street later today to Manchester, Leeds or the North East, as many of you no doubt will. Then compare it. To a journey in the southeast, you would think you were in a different country. Thirty-two years ago, I joined Labour just 20 miles down the road from here towards Manchester to even things up, to make this a country of justice, and I'm still fighting now because progress has been far too slow. If anything, the gap has got wider.
2: You're listening to Politics on Fubar with me, John Ellidge. Uh, last June, as you, you probably noticed, if you listen to this show, we we had a general election. I think it's fair to say that uh, that election went rather better for the Labour Party, than I think perhaps a lot of people were, were expecting at the time. Uh, I mean, beforehand we were probably expecting it was more likely to see Labour lose seats than gain them, but they they, they gained quite a lot. They gained about three dozen, I think. One of those MPs elected for the first time was Lloyd Russell-Moyle, who uh, was elected to the previously Tory seat of Brighton Kemptown with over 58% of the vote. And he's with me now. Lloyd, thank you for being with us today.
5: Hello, yes, lovely.
2: Congratulations on your election. How, how are you enjoying Westminster?
5: It, well, it's a weird place, um, particularly in the sense of um, uh, you have to kind of make your own way uh, there really in this you know kind of you're not really given much guidance you're told here's, here's your office or I was given an office six weeks in um, and uh, get some stuff that you want and do what you want um, so it's it's a bit of a baptism of fire um, I did arrive there and I said oh it feels like going back to school and one of the conservatives said oh yes it looks just like my school as well <laughs> and I thought well it doesn't look much like my school um, my school was you know kind of had prefabs outside and uh, bricks uh, you know, kind of a brick built on the on, on the main part of the building. Not good school, high school, comprehensive, but it, you know, doesn't look anything like Westminster. But uh, apart from that, it's all all good, all
2: good. Yeah, no, I've I've heard it said that it's it's a very unusual job in that there is kind of no there is no guidance when you arrive whatsoever. People just expect you to know what to do. Um, so so as I understand it, and until your election, Labour last won Brighton kemptown in two thousand five um lost quite narrowly in 2015 but you you won pretty convincingly so i have to ask were you expecting this i mean had you mentally prepared for such a big change in your life and to become an mp
5: i had always thought that winning Town was possible and so many people even in the national party said no don't waste your time it's not worth it and i a physical, i'm a local councillor And I had sat down with people, other people that I thought would go for the seat. And I said, I think this is winnable, Um, you know, kind of uh, the feeling I'm getting on the ground is that we can turn this around. Um, So I always thought there was a possibility. I, however, thought it would be won or lost on the same margin that it was in 2015, if you understand what I mean. I thought Mm. we would maybe win it by 600 or we would lose it by 600. So it was only the last week that I started having inkling that we could be on for something a bit
2: bigger. Labour actually did very well on the south coast, didn't they? I mean, I think you, you were quite an extreme example, but you certainly weren't the the only one of Labour doing better than they have in recent years in, in a lot of the towns on the south coast. I mean, what do you think's going on there? Is it just London refugees moving south?
5: It might be what we call um, DFLers uh, in parts of Sussex, down from Londoners. Uh, um, uh, but I suspect there's also something around people fed up with a complacency that they've had with the Conservatives um, who have run large parts of Sussex for many years. And uh, that complacency, I hope, is coming to an end. Um, I hope for their sake, partly. Um, And I hope for our sake it's coming to an end in the sense that people will change the way that they're voting.
2: Mm. So... Yeah, this, this show today is, is kind of about... We're saying the North-South divide, but really we're talking about the divide between London and the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. And you obviously represent a South Coast seat. You, I believe you, were, you lived in Bradford for a number of years. So, so yeah. what's, what's your take on the kind of the economic divisions in this country, geographically speaking?
4: I mean,
5: clearly there are big divisions between rich and poor, uh, and, and a lot of that is about services so uh, an example to give is I've had a, a couple who have just moved down to um, uh, Saltdean, which is part of my constituency, it's a, a village um, in the middle of the constituency um, and uh, they have struggled to get uh, any dentists, any doctors uh, that they can enroll in and the um, uh, health Provision making uh, appointments at the hospital is very difficult for them. They came down from London and they said, Well, where we were before, this was unthinkable. In London, we had walking clinics, we had doctors galore, we had people that we could see.
4: And I said, Well, that
5: is, I'm afraid, the reality of actually even down on the south coast. It looks lovely and it can feel like a lovely place to come to, but we have a hospital that is failing. We have an ambulance trust that is failing. We have a CCG that is declared to be failing. Some of these are in special measures. We have a mental health trust that the report said needed improvement. We had a patient transport service that was privatised. The company then went bust. The um, people running the ambulances were not paid for months on end. The union had to give them food vouchers to pay for the very food that the ambulance drivers were eating to survive day by day. Um, And then was brought back and has been taken over by Hampshire Ambulance Service now. So we've got a, a health service that's completely on the knees. One does feel like if that was a health service in London if you were talking about the guys from St Thomas's Hospital Trust and London Ambulance and London, you know, kind of a, um, and, and all the services for mental health in London that were this poor maybe a government minister would be stepping in. So there is a divide um, uh, that's partly because uh, that's where the seat of Westminster is and I guess it's my job to kind of scream and shout and say, hang on a second, remember us down
2: here. Now, I think... Did, out of weekend, interest, do you, get, do you get frustrated at all when... I mean, we do talk about the North-South divide. That's kind of an easy language for it. But actually, it isn't just the North-South divide, isn't it? Like, I, I, I grew up in, in Essex. And actually, mm-hmm. there are parts of Essex that are really not doing that well. Yeah. There's actually quite a lot of places in the South that people probably imagine to be a lot richer than they actually are. Yeah. Is that I mean, of frustration? the
5: frustration? The, 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 the problem with the South is that uh, costs are so much higher. So you don't have London waiting. You don't necessarily have the advantage of the extra services. The only You do have an advantage that you can get into London easy, um, and that is an advantage. But with Southern Rail failing, that's not always <laughs> that easy either. Um, but when I lived in Bradford, I had a six-bedroomed house of which we paid... £600 a month in Brighton you would be lucky to find a one-bedroom place for £600 a month a one-bedroom shared room Mm. you know
2: yeah it it does feel to me like housing is another big regional divide it's just so much more affordable and
5: and of course if you're on uh, working for a national company Tesco's or if you're working for, you know, kind of um, as a teacher or a young professional, you're on national wage scales. So where are you better off? Are you better off in Manchester or are you better off on the south? Now, London is different because it does have different pay scales, it has different agreements, it has, so it becomes almost like a city-state on its own. And London's amazing in many respects, but what happens if you're just out of London? Sometimes you have the best but also the worst of all worlds.
2: But what's so, so I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap this up in a, in a minute or two. And I realize it's a huge, huge issue. But you know, what do you think the solution is? How can we kind of bridge some of these economic divides that mean that, you know, the economy is so different in different parts of the country?
5: On, on a personal level, I think that there is an importance that we return back to the question of uh, devolution for English regions giving real power to um, English authorities. Now I don't mean like the southeast region, which is in a nebulous kind of region that nobody feels uh, passionate about. But it is about the Yorkshire, to have a Yorkshire Parliament, maybe get rid of some of the other layers of government as well. Um, so we're not adding more layers, but get rid of some others. So mm. there's a Yorkshire focus. And here in Sussex we should have a Sussex Parliament. I strongly believe we should have a Sussex Parliament. I, I go and watch Sussex club. uh, At the Albion, we sing Sussex by the Sea, the Sussex National Anthem. You know, kind of, I feel more tingly and proud, you know, kind of when we're singing that song, possibly than I do when we sing the National Anthem, because to some extent, I feel more connected with my county, Sussex. And actually, that should have an ability to be able to generate resources and development. At the moment, we don't have that. We have um, two county councils, one unitary authority, and lots of district and parish councils that are all doing different things. And sometimes... Actually, we need someone to be able to coordinate, like a mayor of London, um, uh, for for, for, for our regions.
2: Well, there there we go. Perhaps that's the solution. I believe Sussex was one of the kingdoms of the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy. Perhaps we should bring that back.
5: Exactly, yes. Good old Sussex by the (laughs) sea.
2: Well, thank thank you very much for joining us today, Lloyd. It was very good to speak to you.
5: Absolute pleasure. See you
2: soon. See you soon. Uh, in a moment, we're going to uh, have our studio debate on the North-South Divide, where I'm, I'm aware we've, we've mostly heard Southern accents so far, so we're going to speak to mostly Northerners in the next bit talk about you know, how we're going to fix all these problems. Uh, before we get to that, though, we are going to hear from the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. London is the greatest city in the world. I'm so proud of our city. I want every single Londoner to get the opportunities that our city gave to me and my family. The opportunities not just to survive, but to thrive. The opportunities to build a better future for you and your family with a decent and affordable home and a comfortable commute you can afford. More jobs with better pay, not just being safe, but feeling safe. cleaner air and a healthier city
0: and the opportunities for all Londoners to fulfill (coughs) their potential.
2: You're listening to Politics on Furbar. I'm John Alledge. This week we are talking about the North-South divide and now it's time for our, our, our very northern-heavy panel discussion. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by Paul Swinney, who by day is the mild-mannered principal economist of the Centre for Cities think tank and by night is author of the Mackham Dictionary, a book of Sunderland slang. How are you doing, Paul? Yes,
3: I'm good, thank you. Good to see you, John.
2: Sunderland's definitely not still part of Newcastle, right? We're clear it, on that.
3: It's very, from a, from a civic point of view, very different. For, economically, they are very closely tied. <laughs> Excellent.
2: Uh, and down the line, we have Kath Bohr, a writer who lives in Liverpool and contributed to a book of essays from writers of working class backgrounds called Know Your Place. Hi, Kath. How are you doing today? I'm not so bad, yourself. Very good. Thank you for being with us. Last but not least, also down the line, we have Robin Vinter, a journalist and founder of editor of The Overtake, a news website for millennials based in Leeds and launching this year. Hey, Robin, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to stay with you for a minute, actually. Because, you know, okay. Uh, Robin, you you, moved, uh, you and I know each other quite well. You moved down to yes. London for work. You moved back to Yorkshire to start your own business. I'm going to start with a personal question, which is, you know, what's what's going on with all these big life moves? What was what was the thought process there?
1: Um, I mean, for me, I grew up in Leeds. So I, I moved to London as a journalist because... Um, there were no journalism jobs really <laughs> outside of London, because um, sixty percent of, of journalism jobs are in London and um, the South East. So for me, yeah. it was like a, a yeah, it was like a career decision. Like I didn't I didn't have family in London, didn't really have friends in London at the time. Um, so yeah, so that's that's. Purely why I moved, like purely an economic move. Um, and I love London, and I, and I still love London, and it is definitely like one of my favourite cities. Um, but moving, moving back to Leeds was all about two things: um, spending more time with my family and friends, kind of from home and that I grew up with, and um starting a business, which is just so difficult in London. Just kind of what you were saying before about just the cost of everything. You know, I've I've had to. Um, basically I'm not earning anything really at the moment because I'm buying a business and it's just impossible to not be earning anything in London unless you've got kind of like uh, yeah. Benefactor, yeah, <laughs> of the, re- sort of. the
2: rent—the rent alone will, will kill you down here, won't it?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
2: Paul, you're a, you're another you're another northerner working in London. What what on earth are you doing down here?
3: Right. Well, it all comes down to jobs, doesn't it? I think if you're looking at uh, the strength of the economy across the country, you see that London is by far the strongest economy uh, of most of the cities that we look at. Many many uh, jobs in many many different areas and lots of opportunity off the back of that. So I certainly obviously have, have moved down. I know lots of people have made that same journey because of the opportunity that available.
2: Kath, as I understand it, you're you're based in Liverpool. You've never been tempted to move south?
4: <laughs> no, I'm actually from a very, very small village in Lancashire, ah. which I ran an escape from at age 19 and went to the bright lights of Liverpool. I've never regretted it. I mean, I love London. It's great for a day out and business networking and meetings, but I'm always very grateful to come home because I think Liverpool has got a lot of... Um, the very best qualities of London, but in a smaller place, and in the north.
2: Mm, I, I, Liverpool has a lot going for it, I think. It's, it does yeah. kind of have that big city feel to it, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, and, and culturally we're very rich as well. We're very well fed when it comes to museums, and our creative industries are really starting to take off with the Baltic Triangle, which is just five minutes away from the city centre. So Liverpool is very much, a, I, think, well, I think it's a, a really positive place to be at the moment.
2: I mean, how? so, so you're, you're, you're the only one of our guests who's, who's not been based in London. I mean, how, how frustrating have you found the sort of... We're a very London-centric country, aren't we? I mean, we do tend to talk about London stories as if they're national stories. How irritating yeah. is that for you? <laughs>
4: I wouldn't say it's interesting. I mean, I because I'm really interested in politics as well. And obviously, politics is very, very London-based, even when we've got sort of uh, the new mayoral um, in Liverpool and Manchester, which I think is going to make a massive impact for the North. Um, all the book publishers tend to be down south, apart from the publisher of Know Your Place that you mentioned earlier, which is a Liverpool-Manchester publisher. So we've got a few more publishers starting up here as well. So, yeah, there is, there is, a, there is a slight cut-off sometimes, but I think... I think that's changing it's becoming more i think the links between london and the north are becoming stronger in lots of ways
2: Mm. paul you're you're an economist you're you're our expert on these things why do we have this such such huge economic divides in this country what's what's going on there well that's easy question there then yeah (laughs) if you can do that into maybe 90 seconds or
3: so that would be good so i think there's a there's a, a lot of history behind this to understand sort of where we've got to today what we found is when we've looked at cities across the last 100 years we've seen that it's those cities that have been best able to reinvent their economies you know being able to move from low skill jobs to high skill jobs are the ones that have done very well whereas those places that have tended to replicate their economy so you know replace jobs in traditional industries with perhaps other low skill jobs so that's say moving from, uh, from dockyards to distribution sheds or uh, coal mines to coal centres they're the ones that have tended to struggle and so as the global economy has shifted and as the UK economy has shifted, it's been those places that have been best able to attract in this new investment, these new jobs that didn't exist 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that have done this, the, the best. Now, the reason is, well, why is that? Well, the biggest one is skills. You know, if you're a business that's looking to stick their pin anywhere in the map of the UK, you are going to go to the place where you know you can get the workers that you require. And it's definitely the case that London and certain places elsewhere in the Great South East can do that to a much greater extent than what you tend to see further north. And I think that has to be the, the number one issue that we look to tackle because when we look at the skills sort of challenges for the north of England, it's not just a skills challenge relative to the rest of the country, but actually that's a skills challenge relative to the whole of Europe and actually the north of England and cities in the north of England don't do very well on that measure. To
2: what extent is this kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy though? Because I mean, I, I, I kind of already spoken in the show about the sort of internal brain drain mm. of which you are an example, Robin was an example of that, of people moving to London because that's where the jobs
3: are. Indeed, there's a bit of a chicken and egg uh, situation to this. When we've looked at work, looking at uh, the movement of students and new graduates, we do see that not only does London sort of attract a large share of new graduates when they when they leave university, but actually it sort of attracts the highest performers as well, particularly when you look at students from Oxbridge a lot of those graduates from those two universities are coming down to the capital however having said that, you know, there are people who stick around, you know, we are seeing an increasing number of skilled people sort of sticking around within, I think certainly our biggest cities uh, further north but it also points to the fact that it can't just be about skills as well, that has to be the first one, it has to be the biggest issue at the time I think politicians shy away from that but then there are a whole number of other issues that then come in underneath that around transport but that's transport within cities rather than between cities, perhaps we'll talk a bit more that, about that in a bit about planning and about devolution as well and actually those places that haven't got these new metro mayors actually haven't then put in place too to try and tailor policy to tackle the specific challenges that different places face because Liverpool's challenge is different to Manchester, it's mm-hmm. different to Newcastle Robin, as you said you've you moved back to Leeds
2: Leeds mm-hmm. is, is I think now the biggest city in, in England without any form of devolution are, are, are the, the, the good people of Leeds kind of that set in the streets about this? Are people really angry, saying we, we need a metro mayor?
1: I, I think realistically, I'd love to say that that's something that that's the big issue for, for Leeds. But realistically, I don't think it's, it's on people's minds at all. You know, there, there are obviously day-to-day issues that could be helped out potentially by having, you know, some kind of devolution. But people, yeah, people want an electrified rail line or, you know, they want better other public transport in the area and stuff. It's not. It's not something that I've heard anybody ever at all talk about in Leeds. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I, I, yeah, there is there is an element of people people thinking that might help, but people are very cynical also um, about you know about kind of local politics and, and politics in general. And there's often like a feeling of like you know we're given a few crumbs from the table every now and again to keep us quiet. Um, and I, I feel like it's getting to the point now where people are getting a bit fed up of you know some like you know the northern powerhouse and things like that promises that people feel had been made and people were cynical for a while and said you know oh you know we'll be skeptical about this and then you know you don't we don't want to look like um you're not being given um you're not giving things a proper chance and you want to embrace new things but it sent it tends to be the same things time and time again that like you know the promises that that we get made don't always get delivered on
2: Mm. Kath, you said a few moments ago that you know you you were quite infused about the fact that the, the Liverpool city region has, has a metro mayor in, in Labour mm. Steve Rotherham. In fact, Liverpool now has, has two mayors because there's also the mayor of the city of Liverpool, Joe Anderson. That's right,
4: yeah.
2: I mean, why, why do you think devolution is, is, is a good thing for, for Liverpool and Merseyside?
4: That the, because the concentration is so much in London and down south as we call it, it's good that we've got people who will stand up for us because we've got, obviously got Andy Burnham over in Manchester who's a Scouser so and we've got a <laughs> Scouser representing us so I, I'm so, hoping that you know, Liverpool are going to take over the North West, but it does, it does feel like a lot more powerful and it feels a lot more part of a team sort of thing that we can take on any issues that might befall us and I was going to say there's something that Paul didn't um, include in his his, um, analysis before, we've got the BBC in Salford now and that has made a massive impact as regards the skills that we've got in the north, the people coming from London to come and work in Salford at the BBC which I think is making a massive um, impact both practically but also a sense of good the self sense of worth is a lot better in the North West now as
2: well. But as as I understand it, like I've I've spoken to people in Liverpool who who have expressed a lot of frustration, the fact that this should be a great thing for the North, but it's surprisingly difficult to get media city from much of, of the Liverpool region, even though yeah. it's only 30 or 40 miles. I mean, are there the transport links in place to, to kind of take advantage of these opportunities?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's 45 minutes on the train, and then you go from the, obviously, from Manchester to Salford. so it's not that bad. I suppose it's an hour, but then again, if you go from Liverpool to London on the train, it only takes 2 hours 17 minutes, mm-hmm. and that doesn't really make any sense, does it? But, I mean, there are, you, know, the, you know, you've got the, the crossrail in London now that's had lo- getting lots of investment from government, and I think in the north we been let down when it comes to the rail plans that were were hopefully going to be in place and those have been cut back which is a a source of immense frustration Mm. to um, everyone in the north i think
2: yeah chris grayling the transport secretary has been quite I hesitate to use the word shameless, but you know he's been a very enthusiastic advocate of a lot of the investment plans in London, while just cutting all the all the plans yes. for the North that were meant to be part of of the Northern Powerhouse thing. So, I mean, Paul, you you look at this stuff very closely. Was the whole Northern Powerhouse agenda really just a sham?
3: Well, I don't think it was a sham. I think it was definitely politics that were, that were driving some of it. And I think George Osborne uh, did care about the agenda. I think he very much pushed it forward. And I think it has been a good thing. But there was an element of, yes, he did see it from the Conservative Party in terms of trying to get a stronger foothold in the, in the north as well. But I think there's a little bit of a, an issue here about what it was trying to achieve. And I think we have, uh, we've sort of got a little bit carried away, I think, with the idea of, well, we need to better link cities. And it's all about sort of better performance of transport between cities. Uh, But when we had a look into a a lot of this and compared it to certain areas of Holland and Germany, we found actually that wasn't really the big issue. And I think, you know, when we see some of the political announcements recently around electrification of the line between Leeds and Manchester, which is being put on hold uh, relative to the Crossrail 2 announcements, which are going to go ahead. A, that doesn't play great, you know. It do, it's not good politics mm-hmm. for that to happen. However, I think the thing to stress within this is that actually, cro- sort of, you know, when people talk cross rail for the north, it's actually a little bit different to cross rail two. Cross rail two is about transport within a city and trying to improve transport systems within a city. Whereas actually, sort of cross rail across the north is actually about linking between cities. Now, the issue for cities in, in the north is actually it's not links to other cities that are a problem. It's the links of, of transport within cities, and really, what we should be complaining about, if there's a complaint to be made here. Is that why is London getting extra money for Crossrail 2 to better link its transport within the city? But Manchester isn't getting more transport money to link better link within its city or Liverpool or etc.? Well,
2: as I understand it, Manchester has actually, it's one of the reasons I think Manchester's done quite well the last couple of decades is because somehow the 10 different boroughs of Greater Manchester managed to pull it together to actually developed their own transport system in, in in Manchester Metrolink, the tram network, which is the coverage of that is not vastly different to the coverage of London Underground now, right? right. C-
3: certainly, Manchester is uh, way ahead, I think, of, of other cities in terms mm. of its, its transport networks. And that's definitely a good thing. I think Manchester is benefiting from that, and hopefully, we'll continue to see an expansion of that because it's a big place and it doesn't have the same infrastructure as perhaps you would see if you went to uh, other sort of similar sized cities on the continent. If you then compare Manchester, you know, which is second place in the UK, but way behind. London then to the rest of other cities in the UK you see actually it's it's miles ahead of them and I think there's Mm. a a real issue about some of our other big cities that just don't have any real sort of good transport infrastructure at all yeah Robin
2: as I understand it uh, the Leeds conurbation is the largest city in Western Europe without some form of metro network that must break your heart
1: yeah, it's the worst, honestly. It's is, it is and not only that, but we've got like this bizarre bus network made up of different bus companies, um, where you can't, or you can, you know, you can buy a ticket to go from one end of the city to the other end, but it costs double if you use two different bus companies. So, but and you've got to know this, and you've got to know what bus company is each route. Um, so it's just, I mean, there's so much, um, so many elements where it's really difficult to get around in kind of Leeds in the kind of Leeds Bradford area. Uh, Leeds has only got one train station as well, um, which is kind of great for like keeping the city very central. So it's not as dispersed as cities like Manchester or Birmingham. Um, and in in that way, you know, it is, it is quite positive. But if you've got to get from one end of the city to the other quickly, um, walking is usually your best bet, or you can you can get a bus, but it's incredibly expensive for for what would be like a two-minute journey so um, so
2: you've, you've said that no one in in Leeds seems to be crying out for a metro mayor which which you know I'm a big fan of metro mayors so obviously broke my heart mm. but you know what, <laughs> what 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 do you think are the priorities for for Leeds and the wider the wider west Yorkshire region
1: it's hugely transport I mean I know we're, we've talked a lot already about transport but uh yeah transport is a big issue because um so we we kind of have like a self-perpetuating cycle really in Leeds at the moment. The public transport is so bad that most people drive everywhere, so the roads are completely crammed, um, and it makes journeys just so much more difficult. Um, and there was kind of a talk talk a while ago uh, about a tram system in Leeds, and they kind of like planned out the route where it's going to go, um, but. Every, you know it, it happens every few years every few years they talk about a metro system or a tram system and um they you know mm-hmm. if, essentially we all know that they're never going to be able to support it and then after a while they're like oh yeah we can't afford that uh, so i think yeah transport's a huge issue like addressing the bus the bus services would be would be really beneficial because a lot of people commute from um kind of the outskirts of leeds um and yeah that that would make a huge difference Um, and then we have a lot of kind of we are lucky in parts of Leeds to have a lot of like small train stations because we connect so well to um, like Wakefield or York or Hull you know we've got lots of small train stations on the lines to those cities Um, so people can live along those lines and in that way it it can make quite a nice commuting experience for some people but often the trains are horrible, there aren't enough and they're too short mm -hmm. so they're just Completely
2: crammed, special morning. So, I mean, yeah. I'm I'm basically as I'm basically a massive train nerd, so I'm quite excited to find out that the solution mm. to to all our problems is trains. Um, <laughs> yeah. one, one thing we've not discussed so far, though, is um, the the big rail investment we're meant to be getting is high speed too, a faster line between London and the north of England. Mm. Is is Kath, I'm interested. Do you think this is going to save us all? I don't
4: think because it's only two hours from Liverpool to London. And that's pretty quick as far as i'm concerned i'm not sure about further north but i think liverpool is pretty well served when it comes to london i mean it's not going to shave that much time off as far as i can see from where we are
2: so what what would you like to use the money for instead what do you think should be the investment priorities
4: well well for for, for liverpool it's very much as um uh, sorry i can't remember that lady's name. Robin, yeah. Robin, Robin sorry, I do beg your pardon, Robin, I'm very rude. Um, but I'd like to see a better like, infrastructure in Liverpool as regards to transport going from different areas of Liverpool because it does take a long time <laughs> to move um, within very small areas, to be honest with you. And Liverpool geographically isn't that big, but it, you, it does it's a take a day out to, to get to some places. That's a bit awkward as well. And also when it comes to Liverpool, I'd like more investment in the creative industries, which is slightly off topic. But what we've had in Liverpool is um, some areas... Of of the city centre have been developed by a new entrepreneurial um, creative industries. they've built an area up and then student accommodation companies have come in and, and, and taken up the properties and, mm. and, and built on them and, and, and moved the industries out so that's becoming more and more of an issue in Liverpool I'm not sure whether it's the same with other um, cities in the north but sure. it's definitely something we're worried about and continue to be so
2: S- Sadly we uh, we could talk about this all day but sadly we do need to be moving on so I'm just going to ask each of our panellists to very quickly answer me one last Last question which is London, good or bad? CAF, what do you reckon?
4: Oh good, i mean, I love going to London. I mean it's got so much cultural stuff on there. The art galleries are fantastic, there's gigs on every night and you just meet people and it's just I think it's a dead interesting um city and you could just walk for miles mm. and it's always interesting I think. I love it.
2: Robin good. London, good?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm on the I'm on the good end of the scale, but it's it's good for the people who live there. It's a great city. I absolutely loved living there. Absolutely loved it. But for everyone else, it's kind of a bit of a, a drain of resources and a, a, a brain drain as well. Paul,
3: is that is that fair? Well, thirty pence in the pound of every tax that uh, pound that's raised in the UK is raised in London. It's really really important for the UK economy. The key challenge is that it's other places are punching well below their weight. That's where policy needs to focus. And I think we need to learn from London what are the positive stories that learn from London mm. and what the negative stories that actually can do better than London too. You're in
2: so much trouble the next time you go back to Sunderland.
3: <laughs> uh, i just like to thank all, all, all my guests today, Kath Boer,
2: Robin Vinter and Paul Swinney. Um, in a moment I'm going to be speaking to Jennifer Williams, the social affairs editor of the Manchester Evening News, but first our reporters took the streets of Islington where Foo Radio is based to ask whether the public ground here would consider moving north.
0: <laughs> there was... Uh There isn't a sum of money that would convince me to move up north, quite frankly. I love where I live. I live in Easington. Having said that, Edinburgh's not so bad. Uh, Yeah, maybe. A few million quid.
6: Nothing would encourage me to, no.
7: Oh, that's a tough one. (laughs) Um, I'll probably say the prices of London shooting up will probably make me move up north. Uh, Family, yeah.
5: Oh, God. Um... A lot, I think. I'm a London girl, born and bred, so I like it here. Maybe a lot of money in a nice house.
2: You're listening to Politics on FUBAR. I'm John Elledge. To, uh, to wrap up the show, I am joined by Jennifer Williams, the politi- political and social affairs editor of the Manchester Evening News. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Jen's work. Out. She does loads of great reporting on, on events in Manchester and across the north. She's been covering the recent mayoral election and things like the, the horrific terror attack at the Ariana Grande concert in the Manchester Arena recently. Jen, thanks for being with us. No worries.
7: It's nice to be here.
2: So you, you've been covering politics in the north for for a while. How does how does it sometimes feel like the things that really matter up there are going ignored by the, the Westminster media?
7: Um, yeah, I think that would be probably fair to say. I think um, you saw it a bit with the um, big row over the summer about the train electrification in the north. That there's there's probably only really a handful of journalists up here who are kind of covering this sort of thing in depth. Um, so then when something like that happens and Transport Secretary basically comes out and says you might not get your new electrified train line but we're going to give London X, Y and Z there's probably not that many journalists who are really kind of embedded in the issues to be able to write about it
2: I mean do you think that we've talked about a certain amount about the the new metro mayors on this programme and and, you know is, is Andy Burnham someone who can sort of change this just by banging the drum for the north a lot more?
7: Um, I think it never does any harm does it to have somebody high profile bagging the drum um, I was th- I, obviously, I knew that I was coming on today and i 've been thinking about how things have changed in terms of um, the north, I suppose, and the way that it's um, it fits within the overall agenda nationally, and I think the, one of the most useful flag bearers for the North was George Osborne, which is probably a bit of a controversial thing to say because not all of his policies were exactly um, had the best outcomes up here, yeah.
4: um,
7: but one thing he did that was very valuable, and I think sometimes it's underestimated how valuable it was, was just bang on about the North all the time and that message started to trickle through to investors and it also trickled through to other departments in Whitehall. So they knew that this was firmly on the agenda and that they actually had to take it seriously. That, that seems to me to have completely gone now. That seems to have disappeared. So what you're left with is um, Andy Burnham, who obviously will, will continue to fly the flag and people like Steve Rotherham in Liverpool, but they're not in government. Um, and it feels to me as there was a bit of a vacuum at the moment in Westminster where the North is concerned
2: mm, now I actually I, I wrote a piece uh, a while ago for my website Metric, arguing that Osborne should actually consider running for Greater Manchester mayor or two, just to kind of show how serious he was. And you know, he probably he would have lost, but he would have really been making a point. But he decided he wanted to be editor of the London Evening Standard and said, didn't he? So you know,
7: he did. He did absolutely. Yeah. And I think, um, I think the thing about George Osborne was that while he was in the Treasury, he was very serious about that particular economic policy. But you know, there's more, there's more games to play and more toys to play with on the beyond Manchester.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, so what do you think of the whole? Uh, the Northern Powerhouse agenda. How much was there to it, really? Was it purely just a sort of PR thing? And and this, as you just talked about, how banging the drum kind of helped with investors and in so on. But was there anything more to it?
7: I think it was um, I think a lot of it was rhetoric, um, and I think some of it, if you're being uncharitable, was about trying to detoxify the Tories mm-hmm. up here um, to a kind of lim probably limited effect. Um, But I think it depends on who you talk to, because I think if you speak to people in business up here, they were actually massively appreciative of it because it very much kind of added power to their elbow um, to start thinking a bit bigger um, than just, you know, if you're a business in Manchester, you could start actually thinking about yourself in the context of the wider north. Um, So I think from that perspective, I think there was quite a lot to it, and some of it was about facilitating that as well, um, and about getting people around the table and, and, and sort of... And that, that, I think, was part of the, the idea behind it potentially rebalancing things that it kind of gave it a momentum and an energy... That perhaps haven't quite been there before. As far as um, see the flip side of it is social policy, and and the social policy did not back up that rhetoric. So, yeah, so there's lots on of your mind. yeah austerity. Yeah. Um, the way council funding was distributed, um, any number of uh, government social policies over the course of five, six, seven years that have hit the north and parts of the north the hardest. Um, And so there was a real kind of uh, dichotomy, I think, within the government's approach to the north, where on the one hand, in terms of hard economic infrastructure and investment and business confidence and all of these things, we're all about the north. But we're not really that bothered if, you know, massive cuts to council funding mean that homelessness spirals and Mm. um, mental health spirals and all of these other awful problems that we're now they're now starting to become
2: really painfully visible. Yeah, I was going to say, like, homeless, rough sleeping is visible on the streets of Manchester now, in a way I don't think it was a few years ago, as I understand it. Um, something I think I've not really spelt out in this show, actually, is that the, the kind of... The, the core theory of the Northern, Power, the Northern Powerhouse idea, which came from, from Jim O'Neill, the former Goldman Sachs economist, was basically that if you improve all the transport networks between Manchester and Liverpool and Leeds and Sheffield and all the other cities around there, you kind of get an area about the population of London which can kind Mm. of compete as a unit. Do you think the northern cities are kind of ready for that level of cooperation? Because it sometimes feels to me like the only thing people hate more than investment in London is investment in in a different northern city.
7: (laughs) I don't know. That's um, that's not really something that I've come across. I think... Um, there's definitely still that rivalry between Manchester and Liverpool. I think that's, you know, that's still a thing. But at the same time, if it means actually kind of bringing in jobs and building train lines and getting people from here to there, I think, you know, on a, on a practical basis, I think yeah, anything is welcome, quite honestly. Like, I don't think if you said, um, I'm going to build a better train line from Manchester to Leeds or Liverpool to wherever, Sheffield or Hull or, or wherever, that people would turn around and kind of go, oh, well, you know, the reason I say more. this is because
2: I, this exactly this happened to me the other day when I was just like, it was late afternoon. I was just like drawing lines on a map for the benefit of Twitter, saying, "Hey guys, where should we build a new railway line in the north?" And I got absolutely ripped to shreds because it didn't go to Newcastle. So, oh, really? Yes. Like, oh, just <laughs> yeah,
7: look at this bloody southerner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't forget about Newcastle. Um, no, I think uh, I, I, I think that the um, you know that the premise behind. Sorting out the infrastructure in the north—I just—it's just very hard to disagree with, isn't it? I mean, anybody that's been on a train up here mm. knows that it's um falling apart at the seams, isn't that true? Buses on
2: tracks, some of them, aren't they?
7: Yeah, yeah uh, it's an absolute—it is an absolute disgrace. I'm getting my um uh, getting my drum out, but I mean, it is—it is a total disgrace, and that's why when Chris Grayling suggested that actually maybe we didn't need a completely electrified train line, but London did need Crossville too, that was the point where everybody just lost their minds. Yeah. Because it was almost as though people had sat on it for a bit and just thought, well, the government says that it's taking this seriously, so we'll sort of, we'll bide our time and just kind of hope that they are. And it was almost like when he said that, it was, it was what a lot of people had always suspected was the case which is like a bit unfair because when Jim O'Neill and George Osborne were in the Treasury I think they were serious about it but I don't get the sense that this new administration no, I, I no, don't get I the sense that they're serious about anything much. No,
2: it feels pretty, pretty shameless really doesn't it but anyway <laughs> yeah. th- thank you thank you Jennifer for joining us today it's been really good to talk to you. No worries. Uh, that's that's it that's our show thank you very much for listening and if you could give us that review on iTunes we'd, we'd love you very much. Thank you very much.